This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, Poetry Editor of the New Yorker magazine. And on this program, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. And then we ask him or her to read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. And I'm delighted to say that our guest today is Jana Prickrill, who is the recipient of a creative writing grant from the Canada Council for the Arts. And she's a senior editor at the New York Review of Books. Welcome, Jana. Thank you very much. Now, the poem you have chosen to read today is by Anne Carson, and it's called Stanzas, Sexes, Seductions. I'd like to ask you to begin with, as I often do, what it was about Stanzas, Sexes, Seductions that drew you to it. Um, Well, I started out going through the whole archive, and it was fun going through some of the earliest years of the poems, and I thought I might choose something that was quite old. But I kept returning to this one. I love Ann Carson's work, and this poem in particular is the kind of thing that really appeals to me. It's about ultimate things, I would say, death and love. And it's one of the poem, one of those poems that, in which the poet implicates herself by the end of the poem in the sort of implicit conflict that she's building. And I always appreciate that when, when you feel that there's a sort of some sort of moral weight involved for the poet herself. Now, what is it about Anne Carson, do you think, that has led to her terrific success? <laughs> I think it's partly her incredible command of historical sources. Obviously, she's a classicist herself. Um, but it's not just that she is constantly updating and reconsidering the classics. And of course, it's not just the classics that she writes about. But I think it's the way she makes modern usage and colloquial language make the classics seem strange and then uses ancient sources to make modern predicaments seem very strange and unfamiliar. Now, you might describe her as an iconoclassicist in some (laughs) way. You might well. She does combine both classicism, of course, and iconoclasm. I think that's very true. There's a great deal of humor in her work, and that was another thing that drew me to this poem in particular. I think it's very funny. It's incredibly deadpan. You don't know just by hearing it, but almost every line in the poem is a complete sentence in itself, and that delivers a kind of shock at the end of every line. How do we know it's deadpan? Is there a little sign, a little neonized sign above the poem that says this is deadpan, we're not absolutely meant to be taking this at face value? Because irony actually is something that we often as readers of poems find difficult to recognize. I think in this case it's a certain flavor of absurdity that builds from one sentence and one line to the next. 
you end one line and you expect a certain kind of statement or a certain kind of attitude to follow and something unexpected happens. In fact, the title itself might be a bit of a giveaway. I mean, it's hard to um, say stanzas, sexes, seductions without a little smile somehow curling the corners of the mouth. Indeed. It's not just the alliteration, but the sort of litany aspect of it, the one thing after another quality. Why don't we listen to this poem, Stanza's Sexist Seductions by Anne Carson, read here by Yana Prickrill. Stanza's Sexist Seductions. It's good to be neuter. I want to have meaningless legs. There are things unbearable. One can evade them a long time. Then you die. The oceans remind me of your green room. There are things unbearable. Scorn, princes, this little size of dying. My personal poetry is a failure. I do not want to be a person. I want to be unbearable. Lover to lover, the greenness of love. Cool, cooling. Earth bears no such plant. Who does not end up a female impersonator? Drink all the sex there is, still die. I tempt you, I blush. There are things unbearable. Legs, alas, legs die. Rocking themselves down, crazy slow, some ballet term for it. Fragment of foil, little spin, little drunk, little do, little o, alas. The ballet term for it, the throwaway aspect of that's quite amusing, isn't mm-hmm. it? Have we any idea what the ballet term might have been? Is it some kind of jeté or? That sounds good. I was thinking about it, and I I don't know of any ballet terms that use the word uh, foil, but um, you know, pirouette or almost anything, anything that has a sort of diminutive flavor to it. I think. Yes, the little do, little o, alas. So death and uh, sex, sex. And the dead, as W.B. Yeats described, the two, the only two notions in which we should really be interested, do seem to be at the heart of this. Yes. Um, I think what's also very interesting to me about it is how she sets up this problem of death and then love and then very quickly, I think, identifies herself as a female and presents the particular problem of being a female writer I mean, perhaps I'm reading too much into it, but it immediately struck me as a poem about the problem of seduction in writing and seduction in love. And this particular poem appears in her collection, Decreation. Mm -hmm. And there's a brilliant essay there also about Simone Weil in which she talks about the problem of allure and... I think one of the problems that for a writer is how to lure the reader in. Right. And I really appreciate how this poem seems to struggle with the problem of being a woman and wanting to lure the reader in, wanting to lure a lover and being at the same time a mortal body who ages and the kind of meaning that has for a woman that's different from a man. It does seem strange that uh, conventionally we think of enticement as being somehow specific to the female. Indeed. Another thing that is fun about this poem, I think, is at the end when she really starts to focus on the legs 
and she mentions rocking themselves down crazy slow. For some reason, it reminded me of that poem by William Carlos Williams, Portrait of a Lady, in which he sort of beautifully and very colloquial language evokes what it is to be in the sort of fantasy of love. He's describing a woman's legs and how um, how they flow and how it's a white summer's day. And he goes from the knee, the thighs to the knees to the ankles. And it's a wonderful poem. I think it was published in 1920. But there's nothing about in that poem about how it feels to be the woman in the in the picture. Let me ask you about this. Who does not end up a female impersonator? Of course, this may not be Anne Carson, the historical personage who's, who holds this idea or who's even presenting it. It's the speaker of the poem who holds and presents this idea. But do you think it is a question that may have some relevance for the historical personage of Anne Carson, whose name is there at the bottom of the page? Our personalities are to some extent inventions, right? And our personae as poets are, uh, are inventions, Absolutely. Um, I think for Anne Carson more than for others, she even says here explicitly, my personal poetry is a failure. I do not want to be a person. So I think there's always a tension in her work between wanting to get away from herself, which is also a big theme in her book, Decreation. That's literally what it means, um, getting the self out of the way in a work. But I think you can't write meaningful poetry, probably anything, without engaging with what it is to be a mortal and what it is to have a body. Um, so I think she's always harnessing that problem. As a classicist, she'd be particularly uh, aware of the resonance of the word person, of course, related to persona, related to the idea of a mask, which is, I suppose, substantially what's going on here. Indeed. Um, this poem is actually quoted back to her in her Paris Review interview, and she says that what she means by my personal poetry is a failure is that when her poetry gets more personal, it tends to not say what she means. And I think that's the sort of aesthetic problem that the more personal you get, the less expressive you're often able to be. What's very interesting about her poetry is it's not often considered very formally rigorous because her lines are of very different lengths. She doesn't often rhyme. There, you know, there are none of the markers of formal poetry are, are usually in her work. But there's something deeply formal about her tone and her, um, as you say, her mask. There is a kind of performative thing always going on in in her lines. And it's virtually impossible not to be autobiographical also, isn't it? I mean, there are those who insist that the self must be left out of poetry, and I suppose there's a strong argument which would counter that and say, well, it's impossible, actually, not to represent the self, not to have one's DNA all over the poem, even if it seems to be about something completely non- or unself-like. It's true, and I think we happen to be in a moment when there's a lot of selves in in a lot of poetry. I really admire Anne Carson's work for the ways that she transforms problems that are clearly very personal and intimate for her into these much stranger, unexpected, unfamiliar forms. Just the sheer range of her reference and variety in her work, like in, this, in Decreation, there's just such a cast of characters and 
such a wide spread of history that it constantly opens new perspectives on what it is to have a self and to be personal and to be in a particular body. So Stanza's Sexist Seductions by Anne Carson was published in the December 3rd, 2001 issue of the magazine. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. In the December 15th, 2014 issue of The New Yorker, we were delighted to publish your poem, 30,000 Islands. And you're going to read that for us now, Jana Prickrill. Uh, 30,000 Islands, a big title, summoning up uh, a big subject. And it's a longer poem, I suppose we would say. Do you think of it as being a long poem? Do you think in those terms? I do. It's a long sequence, I suppose. What you published was a portion of a sequence that then got longer and is now half of my book, approximately, um, and consists of about 40 short poems or lyrics or sections that are individual themselves but belong in this um, longer train. What's the t- what does the title refer to? 30,000 Islands is a real place. It's a, the name of a, of a region on the eastern shores of Lake Huron in Canada. I use it in the poem as a sort of quasi-fictional backdrop. What I really liked about it uh, in terms of its value as a setting for a long poem was the elemental quality. There's just rock and water and some trees. It seemed like it was fertile ground for a certain kind of symbolism without being too specific. Though in a strange way, the very specificity of it allows you to go crazy. When when you've established the specifics of the place, you can more or less do whatever you like. True. And of course, I also added one particular figure into this landscape who we'll meet in the poem. Uh, And the landscape, I think, functions as a kind of balance for him and he for the landscape. Well, let's hear the poem. Jana Prickrill, 30,000 Islands. 30,000 Islands. Mr. Dialect pauses on a bluff, twice pink in the spreading lakes, his suit bespoke and out of style, his very mood an index of gestures that the artist oversteps. Where should he look for the abiding tinge that flushes the cheeks of all these second homes? Compulsive translator, in time he'll slip the modesty that's his. He, too, reaches for effects. And the other one, who is not upside down in the lake, rippling, with almost the same intensity, sends regrets. He wanted to go to some expense in meeting you, 
with care for the adjectives. Mr. Dialect alone cast a shadow at noon. He did it by leaning slightly. It's far from my wish to identify with the nameless on these islands, he thought. His eyelashes blonde as his collar, and he mild in his vanity. When he could pause on a chronicled bridge, exciting the guess of a dozen origins, why putter here hard by cottages, very few of which screen the famous? It's far from obvious that I'm sufficiently personal. For one, this ties Hermes. Mr. Dialect is generous with problems of metaphor. They are not his problems, but he'll acquiesce to all of these islands. The Indians announcing cigars and vacation days of a vanished clientele, with sanded surfaces distinct and eyes fixed on the far gone, long after the product stopped selling and moved to where the money was, stayed on, fading and slanting into the small dirt beaches. They consent to sentinel the place. They quietly repel any but the most literal description. That one they also repel, and that one. This, we thought, his country, Mr. Dialect a natural, foreign, distinct thereby, thereby typical. But with a sadly proud gesture of refusal, he said, Madam, I never eat muscatel grapes. He clears his throat and shifts it into neutral, gives a slow exploratory draw on the starter. When it argues, hauls back from the shoulder and turns into what passes there for open water. The boat takes you shopping for ketchup and cereal. If the shack at the gas pump had a decent selection of reading material, a man could avoid buying Playboy just for the articles. Mr. Dialect conserves, like a master tactician, the best of his Parisian shirts. To the village laundrette, hefts a garbage bag. At the jump from washer to dryer nets, each 100% remnant in the sack, shouldering them back to the houseboat and pats their sleeves onto wire hangers, eaves of the never-better, seized by a flock of pastel bats. My Paris shirts, the famous dead, hang cuff to cuff in the hanging locker, press for a puff from the hand steamer, a Tuesday promenade in Honey Harbor, the light down to a stub of ash on the top deck, its fiberglass warm and bumpy as the retrospect, some Remy, Ritz crackers, and the usual come-ons from stars overhead. The sky now kindling for him alone at five in the morning. Mr. Dialect will rise, let's say most days, there are no others, with an air of dressing to breakfast beside a caramel brunette, her taste in shoes unswervingly superb. It's not among the things he learns to tire of such blessings. A set of rocks like mountaintops whose mountain flanks are plunged in a body of water. Down in the valley's astronauts water rhododendron pots, their faces sealed in mason jars. To floss their teeth or make some calls, they climb the rungs of a ladder under water and drag themselves over a boulder. When the voices start confiding their Christian names as I'm rinsing plates on the never, then it's time to haul anchor, wait in a dive in Perry Sound, 
and buy a round for whoever won't be a stranger. Should a drink materialize you didn't order, make eyes at the girl who didn't send it, as I'd have done. I became aware, listening to it there, just at the very end of a rhyme or two, Mm -hmm. hadn't quite been conscious of that earlier on. Is Are they coming in just towards the end to give us a sense of things sh closing down, shutting up? What's going on there? <laughs> That's a good question um, and, and a good theory, although the, the poem itself in its full form doesn't end there. I think they just sort of crept in at times throughout the sequence when I wanted to be a little more formal or when I wanted to get a little more distance, I suppose, on on what was happening. Well, may I ask you about that? I mean, do you, do you feel that you can sort of come in and out of formalism? Is that how it works? Sometimes. Um, some of my poems are more formal than others. I think it usually has to do with what I perceive or what I would say the poem perceives as mm -hmm. its tone or its prevailing thought or emotion. I try not to decide in advance. It seems like the, the words and the lines tend to dictate those things for me to a point. But I also, it is at times very helpful to decide that there will be X number of lines in a poem or this poem will be a sonnet and it will be a rhyming sonnet or not because that tends to focus the mind <laughs> and limit one's choices and ultimately make one more expressive rather than less, I think. I'm thinking of who might, apart from yourself, of course, lie behind uh, that poem in terms of influence. I thought of several writers who seem to be just outside the door of the poem, as it were. One of them is T.S. Eliot. Is he a hero for you? He is. I love T.S. Eliot. There is a kind of wonderful irony in almost all of his work. Mr. Dialect could easily come out of an, an early Eliot poem, couldn't he? He could, although once Mr. Dialect appeared to me, it wasn't a, a conscious thing. Um, and once I realized that he wanted to continue returning for a while, I felt like the lineage was closer to Zbigniew Herbert's Mr. Cogito. Yes, um, I thought of that also. But the dialect, I mean, uh, Eliot quotes that uh, French author who speaks of purifying the dialect of the tribe. I think for me, Mr. Dialect was named Mr. Dialect, although, it, again, it wasn't a conscious choice on my part, at least at the beginning, because so much of the poem is about language um, and the trouble of, you know, squeezing experience or emotion into words and the resistance of words to truthful expression. And of course, Mr. Dialect to me is a, is a figure exterior to me. I'm not, I'm, I'm not using him as a dramatic monologue in the way that Herbert does. I think in that case, it's much more about Herbert using Mr. Cogito as a, as a vessel for thinking about all kinds of things. And this is less about thought and more about the convolutions um, and the Baroque problems of expressing oneself. He's a little more like Mr. Prufrock in that regard, isn't he? That's very true, yes. In a way, he's a much more realistic figure than my Mr. Dialect. You could imagine him, you know, being played by someone in a movie. I know there's a rather, perhaps inappropriate question. 
I mean, it's something I should perhaps be venturing an opinion on, but I'd like you to venture an opinion, if you wouldn't mind, on what it is as you come out the other end of the poem, let's call it that. What are you bringing with you as you come out? What have you established? What have you achieved? What have you discovered as you come out that poem? Well, as much as it's a poem about language and also a little bit about the part of Canada where I grew up and my feelings about a very strange sort of idiosyncratic map of the literature that's important to me, it's also, I think, an elegy for my brother who died in his 20s. So one of the things that kept me going in this long sequence, which I, I had never written a, a long series of poems like this before, was this sort of ongoing question of what are the qualities that are important to me in a human? And I think what I was searching for constantly was this air of questioning, questioning oneself, accepting one's ridiculous absurdities. And also, since it's a poem about essentially one male character. It's also a poem about heroism and what we consider to be heroic. So it was also a question of, you know, what are the valuable heroic qualities and how can a male hero be someone who's truly admirable and not someone who dominates or who takes advantage of, of his potentially superior position in society? And I think what I, I, just to get back to your question, I think what I took out of it was or what came with me when I finished was this um, some small sense of satisfaction that I that I had in some sense embodied some of the virtues that were important to me and that I felt were most appealing in my brother. Do you feel that in some sense in this poem you are to give um, the Anne Carson line a little tweak that you are a male impersonator? That's a good way of putting it. Um, absolutely. I think... It was always delightful to me when I was writing this when Mr. Dialect would suddenly start speaking in the first person because that was also something that I didn't plan. I think the only condition that made it possible for me to write something longer like this was not to think about it too much and not not start to schematize how long it could be and what I, you know, what points I would want to make. So I had to sort of in a very nebulous way orient myself between several points and hope that hope that some speech would come and occasionally Mr. Dialect himself seemed to speak in the first person and that was very satisfying. Well, thank you very much indeed for, for such a satisfying conversation, Yana Prickrell. Um, stanzas, Sexes, Seductions by Anne Carson, which we heard read earlier on by Yana Prickrell and then her own poem, 30,000 Islands, may both be found on newyorker.com. Anne Carson's latest book of poems is Red Dock, which came out in 2013. Yana Prickrell's first collection, The After Party, is published in June 2016. You may subscribe to this podcast, the fiction podcast, and indeed the political scene podcast in the iTunes store and you can hear more poetry read by the authors in the tablet edition of the magazine I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of the New Yorker, until next time goodbye You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and in the digital edition for tablets and smartphones, available at no extra charge in the App Store and on Google Play
The theme music is The Pitnacree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alistair Fraser and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.